I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell through all its regions. The dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. He was doing every stage of the process, wasn't yes. he? From writing right through to production, printing. So there'd have been wet paper hanging from washing lines across That's the room. Right. There'd have been stacks of copper plates ready for his process. It's like an enchantment. It has a spell on you. And people who don't realise that are in the position of being bothered and bewildered without realising that they're bewitched. Hear the voice of the bard, who present, past and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees. Those are the opening lines of Songs of Experience by William Blake, the poet artist and prophet who died almost 200 years ago in 1827. Blake wrote some of the best-known and most loved lines in English verse, lines such as Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, and and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green. And yet in his lifetime he was almost completely unknown. He sold just 30 copies of his most popular book, Songs of Innocence and of Experience, and none of his epic masterpiece, Jerusalem, on which he worked for 16 years. The critic Northrop Frye described Blake's work as, in proportion to its merits, the least read body of poetry in the English language. Since his death, however, Blake's influence has grown and grown, He has inspired poets from Swinburne and Rossetti to Yeats and Ginsberg, and musicians as diverse as Benjamin Britten, Billy Bragg, Ralph Vaughan Williams and Patti Smith. Blake is now read, loved and taught in schools around the world, and his artworks are a treasured highlight of museum collections. In 2005, the critic Jonathan Jones called him far and away the greatest artist Britain has ever produced. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, 
And today, I'm going to throw off Newton's sleep, cleanse the doors of perception, and embrace the fourfold vision of Blake's extraordinary poetry. Today, we're sitting in the home of our guest, in a beautiful home in the Oxfordshire countryside, surrounded by books uh, and on some extremely comfortable sofas. And it is my privilege to introduce Sir Philip Pullman to this episode. Philip, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be talking to you about Blake um, on this fairly warmish afternoon. (laughs) Sir Philip Pullman is the author of novels, plays, fairy tales, fables and graphic novels. He is perhaps best known for the His Dark Materials trilogy, Northern Lights, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. Northern Lights won both the Carnegie Medal in 1995 and the Carnegie of Carnegie's in 2007 for the best children's book of the past 70 years. Set in the same world is his trilogy The Book of Dust, the first two instalments of which are La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth. Philip is a believer in the democracy of reading and a vocal critic of organised religion. He tries to read like a butterfly and write like a bee. Philip, well, I'm really thrilled to be here discussing Blake with you this afternoon. And to start with, in your wonderful collection of non-fiction, Demon Voices, uh, you describe Blake as a poet who has inspired and intoxicated you for 50 years. How was it that you first discovered Blake? Um, well, I could make it 60 years now because uh, <laughs> when I was about 16, I had sort of done poetry at school in the way that one does. But the best things in poetry came to me by accident, as it were, overhearing them. For example, I overheard somebody at school, when I, in my second year at school, I would have been about 12, 13, rehearsing Eliot's The Journey of the Magi to speak at a school prize-giving or something. I didn't know what it was because I wasn't in the classroom where it was being done. It had the effect on me that poetry had on A.E. Hausman. It made his skin bristle, so he said he dared not think of a line of poetry when he was shaving or he'd cut himself. (laughs) Well, it had a physical effect on me, those lines from Eliot's poem, which I didn't even know was a poem. But just the way the lines worked and the words worked together um, made my skin bristle, made my hair stir, made my heart beat faster. I had the same reaction of three or four years later in a sixth form class where we were reading Paradise Lost Mm. aloud. And um, that was the way we did it with Miss Jones, Miss Enid Jones, my great English teacher. And she didn't bother to explain all the difficult stuff before we got to it or tell us in a sort of um, ponderous way what it was all about. She let the magic of the sound, the music of the words, work its own enchantment on us. And I still remember it was the lines, as when far off at sea a fleet descried hangs in the clouds by equinoctial winds close sailing from Bengala or the isles of Ternate and Tidore, whence merchants bring their spicy drugs. They on the trading flood through the wide Ethiopian, through the Cape, ply stemming nightly toward the pole. So seemed far off the flying fiend. Those words, as happening to me now, my hair's on end, is describing Satan as he flies through hell. Um, But Blake, I came to in two ways. One was a book on the shelf that's just behind you as you're sitting there. It's called A Hundred Great Lives, which must have been given to me by some relative when I was about nine, ten. 
Um, one of those lives was uh, the, the life of William Blake. And I like the look of him in the picture, in the painting by, I think, Thomas Phillips. Uh, and I like the poem that they quote. It's one of the first things he wrote, How sweet I roamed from field to field and tasted all the summer's pride till I the Prince of Love beheld who in the sunny beams did glide. I, I didn't fully understand it, but I loved the sound of it. And then, again at school, in the sixth form, we were allowed to go and choose some books from the mobile school's library service van, which came around once a year or once a term or something. And because I was interested in poetry, I got a book called um, The New American Poetry, 1945 to 1960. It's, a, it's an anthology, and it included uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howl mm -hmm. and Sunflower Sutra and various other things by Ginsberg, which directly referenced Blake. So I thought, well, I'll have another look at this chap. And on one of my rare visits to London, I went to Foyles and bought this little collection of some of his poems in an American paperback edition, which is falling to pieces. I've stuck it together with sticky tape and it's um, papers all yellowing. It was published in 1960, so it's, it's that old. But I took it with me everywhere. It's so small you can put it in a pocket. I read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell in here. I read all the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. I read Auguries of Innocence. I read all the great poems and some of the extracts from the, the long poems, mm. from America, A Prophecy, for example. This wonderful section, The morning comes, the night decays, the watchmen leave their stations, the grave is burst, the spices shed, the linen wrapped up, the bones of death, the covering clay, the sinews shrunk and dried, reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing awakening, spring like redeemed captives when their bonds and bars are burst. Let the slave grinding at the mill run out into the field, let him look up into the heavens and laugh in the bright air, and so on. Wonderful stuff, and it intoxicated me. And as I was keen to write things and keen to write poetry, I wrote a lot of imitation Blake. And a lot of imitation Ginsburg. Ginsburg was rather easier to imitate. <laughs> but um, that's how I first came across Blake and first became, as I say, intoxicated by him. I love the way you describe responding to it without necessarily knowing exactly what it means. And there's a, another place where you say that you knew that these poems were true in the way that you knew you were alive. And I well, love that instinct. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said, poetry communicates before it's understood. And this is the mistake that a lot of, dare I say, teachers, certainly young teachers, make. They think that poetry is a fancy way of saying simple things. So they think they must explain it, as it were, translate it into English <laughs> so that we can understand it. And when you've, when you've translated it from poetry into prose, you've got it. You've done that poem. You can go on to the next one. Um, that's a terrible mistake. Poetry has got to be heard. That's one thing. It's got to be in the ears and in the mouth. Reading it with the eye alone won't work. And reading it with the eye while you're listening to something else on your earphones, mm. it will never work. The sound is in some mysterious way, not any part of the meaning, but the meaning itself. That's where the magic is, uh, as it is in those lines from Eliot, a cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for a journey and such a long journey, the way's deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. How does he do that? I do not know. But it works, and it's enchantment, mm. and it works every time. It's like an enchantment. It has a spell on you. 
And people who don't realize that are in the position of being um, bothered and bewildered without realizing that they're bewitched. <laughs> That's <laughs> wonderful. And it's good to remind ourselves that one of the collections we'll be talking about today is the songs of innocence and of experience. And we know that Blake sang a lot and was singing as he died, of course, and would sing the poems that he wrote. And it was all about the sound of them. And his poems have been set by so many composers and musicians since, but we'd have none of his original. No, tunes. we haven't. I'm not sure that he'd fill the Albert Hall like uh, Bob Dylan, <laughs> but um, it would be so fascinating. Yeah. Now, on this podcast what we often do is go out into the world and and go to locations where books are set or where they were written for Blake the great setting of his life was the city of London where he was born and where he died and he lived 66 of his 69 years in that city in various different addresses um he was born on Broad Street near Golden Square in Soho. His father was a hosier and he was born above the shop, as it were, in the building that would always be the family home. His brother, James, took it on after his father died and Blake would later have one of his only public exhibitions of his work in the room where he was born, above the hosier's shop there. That location is now a, a huge sort of brutalist residential block called mm -hmm. William Blake House. But it's it's rather good. They have a quotation from Blake. And, and if you step inside the doors, there's a quite a striking triptych relief sculpture of Blake walking along and then in the third one suddenly turning to look at you. It's quite um, effective. I'd never seen that. I must go and have a look at it. We mustn't forget also that London was much smaller then. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, when you mention places like Hampstead and Primrose Hill, these were pretty well out in the country. Sure. Battersea, which is where his wife came from, I think her father was a market gardener in Battersea. Right. So, you know, it wasn't um, a gigantic metropolis, though it probably seemed so to people of that era. And he, he'd walk quite far afield, wouldn't he? Because, of course, there's that description of how he walked all the way to Peckham Rye as an eight-year-old yes. and saw a vision of angels glittering in the, in the yes. trees down there. And London recurs throughout his work in different ways, doesn't it? How does he write about the city of London? Um, I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. It's a description of London seen from down there, from in the poor streets, in the, in the slums possibly. It's a vision of London which um, reminds me of a very different... Actually, not all that different artist called Franz Mazarel. Mm. He was a Belgian woodcut artist, early 20th century, very expressionist. And he did a wonderful series of woodcuts of the city, the sort of anonymous place crowded with faces and with huge buildings seeming to press down he on the... He the wordless novels, didn't he? That's yeah. exactly it, yes. Now, he, you know, like Blake, another artist, another artist in engraving or, um, in this case, woodcutting. And also a similar sort of vision of the city as a place that oppresses, mm. that is um, inimical to free human life. You're quoting from London in Songs of Experience, and yes, it's a really dark and pessimistic view of the city, isn't it? And it seems like growing up, he could be physically affected by the city. There were times when he, um, in a letter to his friend John Linnell, he said that when I was young, Hampstead, Highgate, 
Hornsey, Muswell Hill, all places north of London laid me up the day after with torment of the stomach. Mm. So visiting different parts of a city seemed to affect him. And in Jerusalem, his great final prophetic masterpiece, there's a moment where London appears as a figure, as a, as a blind and age-bent old man begging through the streets of Babylon. But he also had a more optimistic view of the city, didn't he? That in his imagination, he imagined a different kind of city, which he called Golganusa, which would be built on the shores of the Thames, almost superimposed over the city that he could see. It's sometimes hard to um, make out what's happening with with all Blake's names, like Orthuan and um, Ololon and Golganusa and, and Beulah and so on. And although it's possible to do that, and one brilliant expositor of that was S. Foster Damon, who wrote a Blake dictionary, which I've got in front of me now and, and near my desk where I work, um, where he does explain everything in, 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 in terms that make it clear. But you think, well, yeah, but so what, really? The mythology is complete and completely explained and internally consistent and all those things, but um, that's not why we read Blake, I don't think. It, we, we read it for the sound, for the magic, yes. for the for the enchantment. I think, at least I do. Absolutely, and as well as you know, being a poet and as we said, a musician, he he had lots of creative strings to his bow, didn't he? He was trained as an apprentice, as an engraver, and that was really how he yeah. earned most of his money during his life. He trained with the engraver James Bazier near Covent Garden, and some of his engravings are, are absolutely spectacular, aren't they? Well, he was a he was a master of that craft. He had f- fully completed his apprenticeship. He was very talented at it. He copied the things exactly as they were. You know, his engravings of the tombs in Westminster Abbey are exactly what they look like. Uh, that was what he was trained to do: to look clearly, to see precisely, and to lay down a precise line. He was very keen on the importance of line rather than colour. I think he says somewhere, he who prefers not line to colour is a fool. Yes, the bounding line he talks about, doesn't he? That's right, yeah. Well, of course, any artist will tell you there aren't any lines in nature. (laughs) Um, But Blake, because of his training, possibly, was keen on seeing a bounding line around the edge of everything he wanted to describe. Mm. Well, let's move on to perhaps his most famous collection of poems, which are the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. How would you describe that collection to someone who hadn't looked into it before? He called it uh, an examination of the two contrary states of the human soul. Innocence, which of course is embodied in children, and experience, which is the weight we have to carry as adults. And the poems are mostly songs, short lyrics, and uh, the songs of innocence are, as you might expect, happy little songs about lambs and birds and flowers and that sort of thing. Never trite. Simple, but with a simplicity that isn't condescending. The songs of experience are darker and very powerful indeed. Unforgettably simple and devastating, really. O rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night and the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Eight lines. And that extraordinary picture of innocence destroyed by experience, perhaps. Or, or is it something different? It's the invisible worm that's done that. It's, it's the collection from which his probably his most famous single poem comes, The Tiger, 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 burning bright in the forests of the night. 
uh, which is an odd, an odd sort of poem to think about because it's full of questions. Did he who make the stars make thee? Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the stars make thee? And it's it's very odd when you look at it next to the illustration that yes he um <laughs> he did to go with it because all of these uh, lyrics in the songs of innocence and of experience were engraved by hand. That's to say, to be precise about it, written by hand on a copper plate in an acid-resisting solution so that when the plate was soaked in acid, it would bite away the bits that weren't written on and leave the words exposed. Um, this is a, an extraordinarily laborious, it seems to us, method of doing it, but it came to him in a vision, so he claims. His brother, Robert, who had died, came and explained to him how to do this, and he saw this in symbolic terms. It was the fires of paradise burning away what is corruptible and leaving what is incorruptible, mm -hmm. which are his words and and the pictures. It's a laborious thing because he had to write it, write it all backwards. Right, mirror writing. Yes. Mirror writing. And it's beautifully done. Very, very clear handwriting still. And then there's this picture of a sort of cuddly teddy bear, teddy <laughs> yes. bear come teddy tiger, which looks rather incongruous. Yes, almost like a, yes, exactly, a soft toy. And, and often his colouring was quite eccentric. And it would well, be green it was or... literally eccentric because it, it, it wasn't centred on one copy. It wasn't, uh -huh. you know, I think his wife, Catherine, did a lot, did a lot of the colouring. Yes, and every picture was slightly different because of that. And um, every copy that was bound was slightly different because you put the poems in a, in a different order. Right, exactly. Um, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be wonderful to go back to Blake's London and call on him in his workshop and buy half a dozen copies of his <sighs> Songs of Innocence and of Experience? It'd be great to imagine it because we know that the rooms he lived in were not huge and yet he had to have room for the press. He, he was doing every stage of the process, wasn't yes. he? From writing right through to production, printing. So that had been wet paper hanging from washing lines across That's the room right. that have been stacks of copper plates ready for his yeah. process. Yeah, it must have been an extraordinary. The smells in that room must have been incredible. Oh, yes, acid, coal from the fire, um, fish from what they had for last night's supper. <laughs> oh, yes, it would have been tremendously crowded and full of a sort of driven energy, a thrill of excitement and discovery. But that's absolutely crucial to our understanding of Blake, isn't it, that after the 1780s, everything he wrote was through this same process of illuminating his text. So yeah. the, the pictures and the text go together absolutely intrinsically. And and for someone who was so single-minded and so individual, having absolute control over every stage of the process must have been a real gift to him. And you can see why he saw it as a gift from beyond the grave, this, this discovery of this process. Yes, of course, he was the only person to use this particular process. He, he he used it because it was cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, he's quite frank about it. When he first thought of it, he sent his wife out with half a crown, two shillings and sixpence, and she laid out, as they put it, one and sixpence, one shilling and sixpence on the, the plates and the paper and the and, and the asset for his first productions of it. But I wonder what he'd be doing now. You know, would he be writing graphic novels now? Possibly. He'd have found someone to publish him now. I'm sure. And because of the uh, internet and the way it can spread enthusiasms and interests, hmm. he would have found enough support, I think, now. Come back, Blake. We need you now. <laughs> Just going back to the songs of innocence and experience, as you say, the, 
the two halves of that collection were written some time apart, weren't they? I think the Songs of Innocence were first published alone in 1789, and then he added the Songs of Experience in 1794. And as you say, some of them are written in very, you know, almost monosyllabic words, very simple words. A lot of them seem to be addressed to children and spoken by children. There's a kind of mm. childlike um, voice to a lot of them. But what Bentley, the, the editor of the Penguin Classics edition, points out is that the songs of experience um, are not answers to the songs of innocence because there are, you can see sort of correspondences, kind of the tiger matches the lamb um, yeah. and so on. He says, um, the singers of innocence feel protected by powerful forces outside themselves, while the singers of experience feel threatened by powerful forces they cannot control. But neither set of singers has yet learned that the power of divinity lies not beyond us, but within us. I, th I think that's interesting, isn't it? It's not that the innocent are, you know, are in a better state than the experienced who are feeling fear. It's that actually neither of them have reached a third state, which is to realise that strength lies within rather than these forces outside oneself. That's a very astute point, and um, it's um, perfectly valid. Uh, yes, Blake says... He doesn't say the, the successive states of the human soul. He calls them two contrary states mm -hmm. of the human soul, which implies that they could exist simultaneously. And yes, it's such it's such a lovely domestic um, picture to imagine Blake and his wife Catherine working together on these illuminated texts. There's a line he has in Vala, or the Four Zoas, where he says, First he drew a line upon the walls of shining heaven, and Enitharmon tinctured it with the beams of blushing love. Hmm. And in his cosmogony, he's talking about versions of himself and Catherine there. Enitharmon was his kind of fictional version of his wife. They had a very happy marriage, it seems to be. She was um, from a poor family. Mm -hmm. He is said to have said to her, do you pity me? Then I love you. And she was his helpmate in every sort of way. She helped him with the printing. She we presume, cooked and cleaned and did all that other stuff as well. Um, they certainly weren't rich enough to have a servant. And they were in the habit of sitting in their garden um, with no clothes on, like Adam and Eve. <laughs> yes, there's a wonderful vignette, isn't there, of, of one of his great patrons arriving at their house in Lambeth and going out into the garden and finding them naked under the tree. Yes. And, 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 and Blake saying, don't worry, don't worry, we're, we're just reading Adam and Eve from yes. uh, Paradise Lost. <laughs> Come and join us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, so she was, a, uh, she was a, clearly a wonderful wife mm. for him. And I think he said in his, towards the very end of his life, let me draw thee, Kate, as an angel for you have ever been an angel to me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Now, Philip, in 1790, which is between the writing of his two songbooks that we've been discussing, Blake wrote a really fascinating text called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which you've called one of the most radically troubling and exhilarating works that has ever been written. So can you describe The Marriage of Heaven and Hell to us? What is it? It's very hard to um, pin it down and say it is a this or it is a that. It's um, it's not a poem. It's it's a collection of bits, really. It's a vision. It's what he saw in a vision. It's the things he saw written on the wall in a vision. And it's full of aphorisms that are so striking and so um, memorable that you, you could easily see how a, an entire philosophy could be constructed on them. Um these, are, these have the air of pronouncements, of, of statements spoken with complete authority. Mm. He knows this for a fact. He knows it because he has seen it, he has discovered it, he has experienced it. He's passing on this, this fact. And they're radical statements as well, aren't they? They're yes, kind they of are. iconoclastic. Yep, um, indeed. He, because he's completely denying the errors that, that you find in all Bibles or sacred codes. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. One, that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. Well, that is so natural a way for us to think. We think of, we know we've got a body, we've got something inside it that thinks in the sort of command module up here on our top of our neck. Um, so it's natural to think in this. And ever since Descartes, of course, it's been philosophical um, a truth that we must uh, universally acknowledged. Right as Jane Austen would put it. And then he denies it. He says, no, it was only one thing. Man has no body distinct from his soul. Now, this appeals to me enormously because writing his dark materials and then later the Book of Dust, I become convinced that we are not thinking machines, that we think because we are a body, we think with our body. Mm. But what does that mean? Isn't the body a corporeal... Um, dull cloddish thing made of clay and it falls apart when we're dead and so on. Well, um, it is those things, but it's also conscious. Um, this this idea of panpsychism, the idea that everything is conscious, is almost present everywhere in Blake. The idea that um, the, the body is part of the soul, the idea that, you know, you see a bird cutting the airy way is another yes. world of delight. How do you know, but every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight. delight. Closed Closed by your senses five, yes. That that sort of thing. 
The, the, these aphoristic statements, which um, look as if they need to be backed up by some evidence or something, well, there's no evidence. He doesn't give evidence. These are not that sort of thing. Mm. These are statements of how he perceives the world, and their persuasiveness lies partly in the force with which they're expressed mm. and the, the truth that they seem to express as well. Um, it's also in some ways a, an artistic manifesto, isn't it, saying that this is this is the way that the imagination works and and there's that famous moment where he says that the reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's part without knowing it. It's the single best piece of literary criticism ever expressed in the English language. It's a, it's a perfect um, perception of what does happen in, in Paradise Lost, which is the, the parts concerning Satan are so much more vivid, so much more full of energy and interest than the parts concerning God and the Messiah, um, who are a boring pair of miserable bureaucrats, really, mm. compared to the passionate energy of, of Satan. I always said the Byronic energy, which is mm. kind of timely because Byron was the only poet sort of acknowledged by Blake he, uh, Byron, that is, wrote a drama called Cain, where he, you know, he looks at the figure of this rebel, this, this first man who broke the first, the first killer of another man who killed his brother Abel and so on. And the Byronic figure, the sort of world-defying, shaking your fist at the thunder and so on, is a figure you also see in Byron's Manfred and, of course, in uh, The Corsair and various other Byronic things. This was hugely popular then all over Europe. He was the most famous writer there ever been, Byron. And, of course, Blake would have been conscious of this. And his description of Milton's Satan springs, I think, partly from um, his own perception, but also partly from the romantic vision of the mm. time. You know, um, we must break these boundaries. We must throw aside the old rules, things that are binding us and um, tying us down. But if it, it almost feels like it goes beyond even that, does it? It's not just a breaking free. It's a complete sort of reversal of the accepted order. You know, he, Indeed. he's saying what the person we call Satan is actually the God we should be following. The person we call God is Satan. Well, that's what we get in the in the, the Proverbs of Hell, which is mm -hmm. one of the prominent parts of the marriage of heaven and hell. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Um, that is not, um, wouldn't be a, the motto of the temperance society. Right, right. Um, prudence is a rich, ugly old maid courted by incapacity. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. You can see how this became almost the manifesto of the 60s generation, the hippies. Mm. You know, we must experience everything. Mm. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. <laughs> That's a very good line. Yeah. <laughs> what does it actually mean? Yeah, well, good question. Um, you, you know, you can look at these with a critical eye as well as mm. an enthusiastic hurrah. Uh, one of the favourite ones... Um, is one of one of the most popular ones, and one I saw very well taken apart. Now, sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. Now yeah. that uh, seems to say, well, if you if you desire something, go ahead and get it, do it. It's better to murder an infant in its cradle than it is to to nurse unacted desires. Now, in a TV thing which made a great stir when it was on, The History Man by Malcolm Bradbury. 
years ago. This is quoted by the uh, the protagonist of the of the story, a, a repulsive history don at a new university, who basically is a uh, grab grab whatever you can, don't bother about the consequence. Not unlike a recent prime minister. Now I think of it. Anyway, he quotes this line, sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires, to a rather prim and proper young uh, lecturer in the English department. And she says, you've got it entirely wrong. The unacted desires are the things you should murder. If you nurse them, they must be in a cradle. They are the infant in the cradle, so Ah. strangle your unacted desires, don't act on them. That was very clever, I thought. Um, it didn't do her much good because she was seduced all the same by this <laughs> dreadful But yes, that makes some sense of that pretty but brutal sounding Yes, one. they. You know, the, the, these are not simple, straightforward mm. invitations to mm. wickedness. Mm. They are more complicated than that. And if you start thinking about them and unpacking them, you might come to conclusions that you didn't at first expect. It's wonderful, the description of how he gathers his proverbs, isn't it? He says he was walking... I was walking among the delightful fires of hell. And, um, and, and then he says, you know, when you're in a foreign country, it's, it's useful to gather the proverbs because they give you a good sense of the true character of that country. And so that's why he's gathered. And it's pages and pages of them, isn't it? It's uh, yes. four or five pages. And, and um, it's wonderful stuff to read when you're 16. <laughs> Uh, or and indeed 26, or indeed 76. <laughs> he, he was on fire when he was writing this. He seems to pierce always through the obvious to get at what's unexpected mm. and fresh and maybe true, maybe questionable, maybe utterly wrong, but they're all worth thinking about. It's it's fascinating to think about Blake and his relationship to religion because he seems to have been, a, you know, in some ways a devout Christian in some way, a devout believer in Christ and, and, um, and yet incredibly suspicious of organized religion and and the kind of controlling aspects of religion and there's that moment in the marriage of heaven and hell where he describes how religion came into being he says a system was formed which some took advantage of and and enslaved the vulgar thus began priesthood choosing forms of worship from poetic tales and at length they pronounced that the gods had ordered such things thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast yeah and that just reminds me so strongly of your brilliant fable, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, where you imagine twins being born, a boy called Jesus, a boy called Christ, and, and that exact pattern happens. Well, that, I wasn't thinking of Blake when I wrote that, but obviously my reading of Blake through the years it, it sort of informed that book. What um, set that book going was the dual nature of Jesus Christ. One is a man's name, the other is a sort of title. And if you read the Gospels um, attentively and then the epistles attentively, you, you, you begin to notice things that you hadn't noticed before or had thought about and decided they were too deep or too difficult or something. Um, and you just begin to see things that you hadn't seen before. It hadn't occurred to me, for example, that in the epistles that St. Paul is said to have written, he uses the name Jesus about 30 times, but Christ about 150 times. Hmm. Uh, and I counted them all. So clearly, St. Paul was thinking of the God part and not the man part. Mm. And I thought it might be fun to explore the difference between... Also, of course, with twins, um, you can have a resurrection which um, uh, <laughs> is <Right>. explicable. <laughs> well, um, it feels similarly 
bold and radical a step to reimagine the biblical message that way. Well, I was very lucky because um, I lived at a time when you were free to do that mm. without having to engrave them on copper plates with writing back. That's yes, right. <laughs> yes, you wonder because, you know, only nine copies are known to exist of the original yeah. marriage of heaven and hell. You wonder what would have happened if it was more widely spread. But he, he it seems like he became more and more confirmed in this opposition to organized religion towards the end of his life. And th- there's that wonderful manuscript poem he wrote called To Nobo Daddy, hmm. this kind of invented word for God the Father. He says, why art thou silent and invisible father of jealousy? And then one of the very last poems he wrote um, was called To the Accuser Who is the God of This World, mm-hmm. where he, he writes, truly my Satan, thou art but a dunce, though thou art worshipped by the names divine. So these ideas continued throughout his life, didn't they? There's um, a school of thought or a um, a tendency of some critics to consider Blake a Gnostic. One of these critics was a man called A.D. Nuttall. And um, I read his book on Blake and um, Milton and Marlow, I think, at a crucial point in one of my books. I think it might have been The Amber Spyglass. And I found myself completely sort of um, stuck because I, this book had come along, it was like a sandbank, and I hadn't expected it. And I found myself thinking, oh, my God, yes, of course, Blake's a Gnostic. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that I'll have to consider, oh, Lord, I'll have to rewrite that passage. And um, now I've got that wrong, haven't I? Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And then it was Blake who rescued me by, um, I can't remember that line, I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. So with one bound, I was free of that. Mm. That is such a great line, isn't it? I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. And how did that loosen up the amber spyglass for you? How did you then move forward? Well, I I was able to tell myself, so I'm inconsistent. It doesn't matter. Um, It's my system. I can be as inconsistent as I want. I can also quote Walt Whitman. So I I contradict myself. So I, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. This is how poetry works from one poet to another, from one poet to someone who isn't a poet writing. Uh, This is how these influences pass on. For me, it was um, being encouraged to write whatever my imagination wanted to write. Mm. Um, I wasn't writing to a system. You know, he says, I must create my own system or be enslaved. Well, if if a system develops, that's fine, but I'm not writing to my system or to anybody else's system. I'm writing what my imagination wants to write, where it takes me. And to be enslaved by somebody else's, to write in order to promote this political philosophy or that um, religious way of thinking or, or whatever it might happen to be, is abhorrent mm. to me. I can't do it. I would be in fetters. Mm. So mm. I throw them fetters aside, write wherever my imagination wants to go. That's how I was um, freed, liberated <laughs> by Blake. I was the slave running out, of been grinding at the will for... Running out into the fresh air and rejoicing. That's what I felt like. Yeah, you say, you, you, you say somewhere that um, writers should use what works, and if invoking ghosts, demons, spirits, gods, demigods, nymphs, or hobgoblins helps us to write, then we should banish the superstition about not being superstitious and invoke them without embarrassment. This is in part a, um, a response to humanists who sometimes enlist me among their number. I'm perfectly happy to be enlisted as a humanist because, as he says at the end of the auguries, God exists and God is, but has a, does a human form display to those who dwell in realms of day. So humanism is... Okay. 
But it's my response to those who, who disparage superstition and, and, and who say, oh, no, it's all sort of childish nonsense. We move away from that. Science is the only guide. You know, if there's no scientific evidence for something, it doesn't exist at all. Fooey, I say to that. Fooey. If I want to believe in ghosts uh, and if it helps me to write, then I will believe in ghosts. Mm-hmm. And of all poets, it feels like he went the furthest to create this extraordinary mythological system that evolved over his lifetime, didn't it? And, and, yes. And it kind of changed from one vast poem to the next. Yes, um, entering realms of deeper and deeper obscurity. <laughs> yes. I fear for many readers. I don't know how many people who love the songs of innocence and experience and the marriage of heaven and hell and all goodness, have read the whole of Jerusalem and the whole of Europe and the whole of it and so on. Not very many, I guess. Not many. I have read the whole of Jerusalem. I shared a reading aloud once. I think I was there with you on that occasion. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was an interesting experience. Yeah, it was fantastic. We, we sat in a circle and there were no rules of who spoke at any That's one time. It. You just, when you felt like joining in, you, you did. And sometimes you'd be reading on your own, sometimes in unison with others. And we got through the whole thing in, in a long afternoon, didn't we? Uh, yeah, or a night, I can't remember. Yeah. Maybe yeah. through the night, something like that. But yes, um, you, you can do it. But nobody else has come along to write more poems about Golganuza and um, Los and uh, Yurizen and so on. It's, um, it's Blake's system only. You have a lovely line in, in one of the essays in Demon Voices where you say, you know, although we can't always fully understand the precise relations between Los and Yurizen or Rintra and Palamabron and... Blake himself has a clear idea of it all. And you have that confidence, don't you, that you know that he knows where it all fits in. Yes. And so if you did have the patience and the time and the strength and the persistence and so on to to read it all through and work it out, you'd find it all worked. Mm -hmm. But we don't need that, I don't think. And it's funny that, you know, at the same time as he was able to be so sort of cosmic and abstruse in some ways, he could also be so precise and clear. And one of his most wonderful poems is auguries of innocence great poem which i've read you you've described as one of the greatest political poems in the language you know it leads on rather well i think from the proverbs that we've been talking about auguries of innocence is probably most famous for its first four lines to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour now that has connections to the kind of um, blissful um, psychedelic vision described by Aldous Huxley. I think he's one of the first to quote these lines. Mm. And it also shades in another way into those rather gloopy, wellness-inspired photographs of a misty, you know, morning with flowers. Right. Yeah. So, you know, but, it, but it's, not, it's not like that. It's, it's immediately fierce. Mm. The next line is, A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell through all its regions. The dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. That is a wonderful couplet. Dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. This is connecting small things with great things. Mm. Saying if you can't look after your dog, how can you look after a country? Mm-hmm. And then um, a horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. It's immediate. Every couplet packs a punch, doesn't it? Yes, the way it does. That it, you know, each each idea, as you say, connects such a recognisable, simple image with a huge idea and then punches it with a rhyme on the second That's line. right. The whore and gambler by the state licensed bill that nation's fate. Um, I remember under the, the Blair's government, they were considering licensing 
not brothels, but casinos, and they did. Mm. Gambling, wonderful thing, gambling. Let's have a lot of it. There was a picture of Tessa Jowell, I think, the minister responsible for this, with holding up, shaking a pair of dice in a sort of inviting way over a whatever it was, craps table or roulette wheel or something. And I thought of this couplet then, what are you doing? Have you thought this through? What are you doing? Are you licensing gambling? And, it, and it, you know, it goes on. The wanton boy that kills the fly shall feel the spider's enmity. What mm. a line, what a line. Yes, that is a fantastic line. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Yeah. That feels very apt. Yeah. This is what I mean by saying it's a political poem mm. because he deals with the small things and the great things. Mm. All our politicians should have this poem engraved on their memory uh, by force, if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's interesting thinking about Blake as a political person because he wasn't really interested in party politics. I mean, he wasn't sort of aligned, but he had a real sort of attitude of rebellion and radicalism, didn't he? Yes, he did. He would wear a... Um, the Phrygian cap. The Phrygian cap in sympathy with revolutionaries. And, and in fact, in, in 1780, when he was still a, an apprentice, it's sort of unclear how intentional it was, but he got swept up in the crowds of the Gordon riots and was mm. there when Newgate Prison was raised to the ground and, yeah. and somebody painted in huge letters on the smoking walls, His Majesty King Mob destroyed this great site. So he was friends with Mary Wollstonecraft and, and Thomas Paine and, and great revolutionary thinkers. It was a time of political ferment, you know, you think of Shelley and um, I met Murder on the way, he had a mask like Castle Ray. Mm. Uh, it, it was a time when these, these things were happening and the French Revolution was only then, what, 20, 30 years old or something. Mm. The greatest overturning of any uh, regime up till then in history. So it was an exciting time. He wasn't involved in party politics because, well, there wasn't really what we call a democracy in mm. the present sense. The electorate was tremendously small. Mm. Basically, if you owned property and you were a man, uh, you could vote. <laughs> Nobody else could, so clear off. Women, clear yes. off poor people. Yes. You're not yes. going to vote. So party politics didn't really exist, and I can't quite see him, really, at a, you know, a meeting of a local mm. well, Labour Party or whatever it would happen to be. What about, what about Resolution 42, comrades? Shall we, <laughs> shall we composite that over the conference? That's not really his stuff. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, and of course, the one time that Blake did try living outside of London when he lived in a little cottage on the coast of Sussex called Feltham, he managed to get into an altercation with a with a soldier, Private Schofield, and this soldier accused him of having uttered seditious words, damn the king or something similar. And he found himself actually being tried for sedition. In the, yes. In... Well, that was a bit unfortunate. Um, he, he was uh, clearly a little bit intemperate on that occasion. Um, but the man was, I think, urinating in his garden, so maybe well, he was... Well, uh... yes, um... <laughs> He was provoked. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course he was provoked. But these were seditious times. I remember um, it would have been about 20 years earlier, Samuel Taylor Coleridge was either arrested or was threatened with arrest for, for being a spy, a French spy. He was studying Spinoza. Right. And the, um, the officer who arrested him reported this as spy nosy. He was, he's a spy <laughs> called nosy. Spy reading spy nosy. <laughs> Sir, <laughs> Your Honour. Of course, because um, it was the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, there yep, was, there was exactly. A lot of worry these, about. these were these were troubled times, seditious mm. times. And um, Blake, uh, well, he should have 
told the Schofield to bugger off and forgotten about it. But he was, you know, everybody, everybody was on edge. Mm-hmm. He was right near the south coast where a French invasion would have come anyway. But uh, that was just unfortunate. And I suppose one of the most unfortunate things about Blake's life when we look back at it is how little he was recognised during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned earlier that 1809 exhibition that he held in the room where he was born above the hosiery shop and very few people came to that. He wrote an extensive descriptive catalogue of all the um, paintings and pictures he was exhibiting and the newspaper The Examiner just read the catalogue and described Blake as an unfortunate lunatic whose personal inoffensiveness secures him from confinement. Yes. And you know, although some poets were aware of songs of innocence and of experience, Robert Southey, for instance, the poet laureate, he called Jerusalem a perfectly mad poem. Um, well, you can see why. Mm, um, mm. Artists whose taste was formed or whose talent first came to flower in a previous generation often can't see what's good about the succeeding one. Think of all those um, composers uh, who didn't understand the revolutions brought about by Stravinsky and Schoenberg mm, in there. Mm. Um, and... and um, Artists pretending to shudder with fear and horror are confronted with a Picasso painting. Um, so that's that's just partly mm. simple, old-fashioned, conservative taste. Wordsworth was a bit more on the ball mm. because he said, um, you know, he may be a poor lunatic, but there's more that interests me in him than in Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. There's more, I can't remember the exact line. There's more that interests me in this man's madness than in the sanity of Lord Byron. Mm. But he was intransigent. He was uncompromising. Yes. That's all right if you've got a wife like Catherine, but it's hard if you had children. Yes. It wouldn't have been quite so easy. Yes, he could have had an easier time. If he'd had a public, things would have been different. He had a few admirers. I mean, Samuel Palmer, the painter, was mm-hmm. one of them, for example. And um, they used to gather these, these, they call themselves the ancients. Yes, right. Yes, Towards the end of his life, that's right, he met John Linnell, who we mentioned earlier, this young landscape painter. And... Linnell sort of took him under his wing, didn't he? Although he's much younger than yes. Blake, and and introduced him to his friends like Samuel Palmer and George Richmond and so on. And and yes, in this sort of ironic way, these young friends called themselves the Ancients. And I think Linnell ended up sort of, you know, really sort of funding Blake's final years and and well, helping him out. Artists who are difficult and intransigent sometimes do find patrons who are mm. good and kind. And earlier in his life, yes, another extraordinary patron, Thomas Butts, the man who found them in the garden naked. Yes. He was a clerk in a bureaucratic office. He he didn't have a huge income, but he spent most of it on buying Blake's works. And yeah. it, it is incredible that there were these few visionaries who really saw the quality and, and interest in what Blake was doing. Well, you know, we think of Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo, who mm. funded his entire art, artistic output. I don't think van Gogh sold a single picture in his lifetime. But... Um, he found the generosity of his brother. Well, Blake's fortunes gradually dwindled despite the support of Linnell. And, and as I say, they moved to different lodgings around London. His last lodgings were off the Strand in Fountain Court, which is now, you can go to the very spot, there's a little covered passageway that goes down off the Strand, right next to uh, the Strand Hotel. And you can stand on the spot where Blake finally died on the 12th of August in 1827. And he was buried at Bunhill Fields, the dissenter's mm. burial ground, near Daniel Defoe and John Bunyan. Uh, and his biographer, Alexander Gilchrist, who, again, was one of the first people to really recognise how important Blake had been and 
He quotes Blake saying that I cannot think of death as more than the going out of one room into another. Um, It's a lovely line. Now, in the lecture you gave to the William Blake Society, of which you used to be the president, which again is in Demon Voices, you, you describe yourself rather brilliantly as both a moth flying round the flame of Blake and a bee collecting his nectar and turning it into <laughs> into your own words. And to finish, Philip, what are some of the, as you call them, drops of nectar and beams of light that you've personally found most inspiring about Blake? Um, well, we've quoted a lot of them in this talk, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. But, but um, I come back to the the, the seemingly simple, our sunflower, weary of time, who counters the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb. It's the simplicity of that, the um, the perfection of it. It will never be surpassed since. These are the things that remain with me. And the, and the picture of Blake working, working, working um, with his loving wife nearby, and the two of them sitting reading in Paradise Lost in their garden naked and thought of him singing as he as he died, mm. uh, you know, looking forward to the next room that he's going to go into and saying, I will draw thee as an angel, Catherine, because you've always been an angel to me. Those are the things I remember. Those are the things I take from Blake, as well as the fiery aphorisms, the, the tremendous uh, romantic landscapes and splendours the proverbs of hell and all that. He was a, a great, great man. I loved him when I was young. I shall never stop revering him. Well, Philip, that's a wonderful way to conclude this fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Blake. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Henry. Many thanks to Sir Philip Pullman and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with this. When Blake was buried in Bunhill Fields, he was placed in a communal plot, the fifth of eight interments, and the location was unmarked. Later, a memorial stone was set up saying that he lay nearby, but no one knew exactly where. After years of sleuthing, however, two amateur researchers, Carol and Luis Garrido, used burial records to triangulate from marked graves and pinpoint Blake's precise final resting place. In 2018, on the 12th of August, the date of Blake's death, a new carved gravestone was laid on the very spot, And Philip Pullman said a few words. If you visit Bunhill Fields today, you can see the stone, which features four lines from Jerusalem, Blake's masterpiece. I give you the end of a golden string. Only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.